And so the first thing we want to do is we want to take note of the timing of the disciples' arrival. You see, if they had arrived any earlier, they would have interrupted Jesus' conversation with this woman. If they had arrived any later, they would have missed what Jesus says in verse 26 of John chapter 4. In verse 26, we see in the original language, the Samaritan woman is saying that she doesn't understand everything Jesus is saying, but she knows when the Savior, when the Messiah arrives, he'll explain everything. And in the original language, Jesus says, I who speak to you am. And he's saying not only that he's the Messiah, but he's saying he's the same God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush thousands of years earlier and told Moses that the name of God was I am. He's making that reference. He's saying, I who speak to you am. And his disciples arrive right as he's saying that, right as he's saying, I'm the Messiah, I am. So they walk into their rabbi, Jesus, making this statement. And they also walk into Jesus having a one-on-one conversation with a Samaritan woman, which is against all kinds of cultural rules and practices. God made sure that the timing of the disciples' arrival was perfect. Now remember, Jesus' disciples are very Jewish. They're very nationalistic. They're very religiously and ethnically proud. They're very sexist, which in their defense was the cultural norm at the time across pretty much the entire world, unfortunately, and very prejudiced. He's brought them with him to Samaria so he can teach them a few things. And we're going to pick this up in verse 27 of chapter 4. It says, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? The disciples are shocked to find Jesus talking to this woman. It's one of those moments where there's a conversation going on between Jesus and the disciples, even though nobody's saying a word. You ever had one of those situations where there's a whole conversation going on, but nobody's saying a word? If you've ever had family stay with you or you've stayed with family and you're married, you've had these conversations with other people in the room. Nobody's saying a word, but you're having a whole conversation. You know, for, for me in my house, it, it, it usually happens when kids have just driven me crazy and I have, I have one of my uh, supreme I'm not Jesus Christ moments. And I, and I just tell the kids, shut up, just shut up. Everyone goes quiet. And, and Charlene's very smart. She doesn't say anything. She's unbelievable. She didn't even look at me. Can you, can you believe that? And all I'm thinking is like, would you shut up? She's not saying a word, you know, but I'm thinking like, would you, would you shut up? I know. I know. Okay. She's like, I'm not saying anything. It's like, I, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Like, I'm not saying anything. It's just unbelievable. So there's this whole conversation going on. And the, uh, the disciples are thinking, Jesus, uh, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing with this woman? And Jesus is thinking, you guys got something to say? You guys want to say something? something? Something on your mind? This is conversation. But nobody's actually saying anything. In verse 27, it tells us some of the questions that they're thinking. They're thinking of asking this woman, what do you want? What do you seek? They're thinking of telling Jesus, why, why are you talking to her? And they view the Samaritan woman exactly the way you would expect Jewish men to view a Samaritan woman at that time, like a, like a stray dog. They'd like to shoo her off and rebuke Jesus by saying, what, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing, Jesus? No one's going to take you seriously as a rabbi if you do stuff like this. No one's going to respect you. These are Jesus' own disciples, and it doesn't even cross their mind that maybe Jesus is right and they're wrong. It doesn't even cross their mind. 
they still fall into what they've been told culturally to believe. You know, we all fall into this sometimes. We all form opinions about who may and may not become a Christian based on our previous experiences and our biases. We look at people and we say, you know, I think they could become a believer or I just don't see it with them. I just don't see it. But the truth is there's no type of person who needs Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. And if you were to ask a professional profiler, like a, like a psychological or criminal profiler, to form a profile of the type of person who becomes a Christian, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Because it's every age, it's every ethnicity, it's every language, it's every history, it's every upbringing, it's every circumstance, it's rich and poor. There's, there's no pattern, there's no type of person who becomes a Christian. There's only one factor, and it's the first lesson that Jesus wants to teach his disciples. It's also the first fill-in on your outlines. Jesus wants to teach his disciples that everlasting life is available to anyone who asks. That's the type of person who becomes a Christian, the type of person who's willing to ask. I know it's hard, but we have to make sure that we don't ever write people off just because they don't seem like the type of person who might become a disciple of Jesus. You know, the grace of Jesus is greater than any other factor. And where you begin does not determine where you finish when Jesus interrupts your story. Jesus is for anyone who asks. It's for anyone who asks. We're going to skip ahead to verse 31. And it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You need to eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. I love this moment between Jesus and his disciples because Jesus is being Jesus. He's being profound. He's being spiritual. He's using an obvious metaphor. He's speaking deep truths. And it goes completely over the head of the disciples. Verse 33, therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Does he have a secret stash we don't know about? What's going on? Totally, totally over their heads. And I, I, I love this because these guys are spiritual simpletons. And some of them will go on to write some of the most profound and life-changing literary works in the New Testament. It's incredible the change that's going to take place over just a few years. But this is classic disciples, classic disciples behavior. And I think one of the reasons this is making a note, taking a note of is so that we can read ourselves into the story. So that we can read ourselves into the story. We might laugh, but if we're honest, many of us would have given the same response and and that's okay because for, for many of us, we believe in Jesus, but we're still figuring out what that even means. What does that even mean? I, I believe in him. Yeah, I do. What, what does that mean? I, I'm, I'm still figuring that out. That's where the disciples are. So if that's where you are, read yourself into the story and, and find hope, knowing that, man, you can, you can start in the most simple place where anytime somebody starts talking about spiritual stuff, it's over your head. That's okay. That's okay. Jesus didn't respond to the disciples by saying, seriously, guys. Like, seriously. Can I just, like... Have a profound moment, you know, just shut up and let me be deep. He doesn't say that to them or anything like that. We're going to see this amazing transformation take place in their lives. And when we see the disciples acting like simpletons, it's our chance to pause and just say, thank you, Jesus, you're, you're just as patient with me 
as you were with them. You're just as patient with me. The disciples think Jesus is talking about literal food, just like the Samaritan woman last week thought Jesus was talking about literal water. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, he's going to explain this. He's like, guys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's an incredible verse. He says, my food, what sustains me, what keeps me going, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus has just been doing the Father's will in talking to the Samaritan woman, and he's telling his disciples, listen, doing that brought me greater sustenance and satisfaction than even physical food can. I got more out of that than I'd get even out of physical food. And there's a deep, deep satisfaction that comes from knowing you're doing exactly what the Father wants you to do. Exactly what he wants you to do. And I'm not just saying that this is always ministry. This is a conversation with someone about God. There's that same deep satisfaction, whatever your occupation is, when you can have that sense of knowing, I know this is what God wants me doing at this point in my life. There's a deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that, knowing that you're exactly where God wants you to be, doing exactly what he wants you to be doing. So here's how you put that to the test. Here's how you figure this out. If that's really what's motivating you, is being in the will of the Father. You know, God is going to bring you to a place in your life, maybe you're there right now, where every other motivation is denied to you. What I mean by that is you're going to find yourself in a place where there is nobody to praise you. There is nobody to thank you. There is nobody to compliment you. There is no audience. There is no monetary reward. There's no appreciation. It doesn't build your social circle. And you're going to find yourself in a place where God asks you to do something where you don't get any of those things as a payoff. And when you find yourself in that situation, you're going to suddenly realize what really motivates you. What really motivates you. Because if you're motivated by any of those things that you're being denied for that season in your life or for that task or for that calling, you're going to get very bitter very, very fast. You're going to get very bitter. If you're motivated by the approval of the Father, you're going to find a deep satisfaction in doing that thing or being in that place, even if you don't get any of those other things. So if you're doing something that you know God called you to do, you're being in a place God called you to be, but you're just frustrated and bitter, might be worth asking the question, what, what were you expecting to get out of this? What were you expecting to get out of this? Is the approval of the Father not enough for you? Or do you really want something else? This applies to me as much as it does to you. I've been there plenty of times. It's when you find out what's sustaining you. You know, when I got my first full-time job in ministry, I was 20 years old. We are in Central Texas. Charlene and I got married um, I started full-time ministry, f- full-time work, and we moved countries all at the same time. <clears throat> and I started, the first pastor I worked for was a total micromanager. I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of working for a micromanager, but uh, he, he was a person who just could never believe that I was ever working hard. You know, if, you cu- if it comes back to the office and I'm not there, 
I think in his mind, you know, I was somewhere goofing off rather than, you know, visiting somebody in the hospital potentially or something like that. So it would be constant micromanaging tactics like coming in and saying, I just want you, you know, for the next month to document what you're doing every 30 minutes on this chart. Just write it down. Which just drove, drove me absolutely crazy. Micromanager. And uh, when I left that job, I got an email three months later from him. I, I still have it. And it said, you know, after you left, we had to hire four people to replace you. I guess you really were working hard this whole time. Ha, 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 you know? But it was like, I still have that email. But during that time, you know, we just got married, and it was 50, 60 hours, sometimes more sort of weeks of work, (coughs) doing everything from landscaping to youth ministry to worship, everything. And uh, during that time, I was confronted with that issue, with that issue. I'd go out walking the streets at night and just praying, God, just get me through tomorrow. Just get me through tomorrow. Like, that's, that's my prayer. I don't know if you've ever been to that place where you're just like, just help me not to die tomorrow or kill somebody. That, you know, just, just, that's all I'm asking. It's a simple prayer. And during that time, which I wouldn't trade for anything, is when I learned how to work for the approval of the Father. Because every other motivating factor was denied to me. And confronted with that choice, do you get bitter Or do you learn to find the satisfaction that's only found in the approval of the Father? And the Holy Spirit was good to me and steered me in the right direction. Maybe you've been through that. Maybe you're going through that. If you haven't, I promise you will. You don't need to be scared of it because the satisfaction of feeling the Father's approval is better than anything. It's better than anything. And that's what Jesus is saying. So put this on your outline. The approval of the Father The approval of the Father will sustain you through anything. It'll sustain you through anything. You'll make it. In verse 35, (coughs) Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus is using a farming analogy here and and from his statement about the four months, we can deduce it's probably December or January. They're, they're standing in this rural town in the region of Samaria, and there's going to be farm fields all around this town that are about four months away from the harvest time. And so when that was the case, the farmers wouldn't be out on their porch, you know, watching to see if the harvest was starting. They knew it was still four months away. So they went, went on with their lives. They did something else, and they left the fields alone. So in the same way, The disciples have assumed that the Samaritans are not the type of people that the Messiah would want to save, that God would want to reach. They've assumed that they're in an out-of-season location, basically. So they're not even looking for a harvest. They're not even looking for God to do any work because they're thinking this is just not the type of people. And there's a double meaning when Jesus says, lift up your eyes, because Jews wouldn't have even wanted to make eye contact with Samaritans. So they're there, and Jesus using this far, uses this farming analogy. He says, lift up your eyes and look around you. Look where we are right now. Look around you. They're part of the harvest. They're a part of the group that I've come to reach. And over time, Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples that he hasn't even come to just reach the half-Jews. He's even come to reach the non-Jews, the Gentiles as well. He's breaking them in gently in, in Jesus' sort of way. Jesus is not saying that everybody is ready to receive him. 
He's not saying everybody's ready to receive him. The Holy Spirit has shown Jesus that these Samaritans in this town were ready to receive him. And that's why he describes them as being white for harvest. It's what the wheat would look like when it was ready to be harvested right then, ready to go, primed and ready. And the Holy Spirit had told Jesus, this, this, these people in this village, they're ready to receive you. They're ready for you. The lesson is this. It's on your outlines too. There are people who are ready to receive Jesus in places you might not expect. In places you might not expect. You see what had really happened to the Samaritans. Instead of becoming just bitter and hardened, all those centuries of rejection and animosity between them and the Jews, all those centuries of being told they weren't legitimate, they weren't good enough, all those years of being told that God wasn't for them, instead of making them hostile, what it really did was made them ready to receive Jesus when he came in and he said, hey, the kingdom of God's for you. You're welcome to be a part of this family. Those centuries of being told they were illegitimate made them jump at the message that they were invited to be a part of the family of God. It wasn't the reaction that you first might expect, but that's what happens. That's why God says, don't, don't count people out. Don't count people out just because of the type of person they are. Our prayer is that God would give us eyes to see that. Eyes to see that. Verse 36, he continues and he says, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. There's two things worth noticing here. The first is that there's eternal rewards awaiting those who participate in sowing and reaping. That's what Jesus says. There's rewards in heaven for those who play their part in reaching those who don't know Jesus. Secondly, you can fill this in. This is huge. Different people sow and reap. Different people sow and reap. This might take a lot of pressure off some of you because sometimes we feel like we're supposed to sow, till the soil, and reap a harvest all at the same time. Jesus says, There's those who sow and those who reap, and it's different people at different times. The greatest evidence for this is the fact that the overwhelming majority of people come to know Jesus through relationship. They do, through a relationship. If we were to go around the room, some of us have unbelievable and shocking testimonies. Others are still miraculous, but a little more normal. But almost all of them are probably connected to relationships in some way. Almost all of them. And so when Jesus talks about sowing, he's saying, listen, there's going to be different people who are going to sow into the lives of those who come to know me. And then at a certain point, for most of them, they're going to end up in a relationship where they're going to reap all those seeds that other people sowed. That's how it works. That's how the process goes. So when you share your testimony, you remember last week we were talking about the Samaritan woman, and she shares her testimony with the village, and they don't get saved from her testimony. She sows seed. That sowing causes them to go to Jesus. When they meet Jesus, then they begin to believe in him. She sowed Jesus actually directly in that situation. But when you share your testimony with somebody, when you're just saying, hey, I just want to tell you what God did in my life. This is the God that I believe in. That's sowing. You might not be the person who reaps, but one day God might put them in a relationship with somebody, and that seed is going to bear fruit. Somebody else is going to reap that. 
when you invite somebody to church with you, get them to go, you're sowing a seed. You know, I might get to be the person, Lord willing, who reaps that, even though you're the one who sowed the seed. But Jesus says, listen, there's supposed to be joy between the two. The whole joy comes from people coming together, being used in different ways with the end result of people coming to know Jesus. And so if you're, if you're being shy about sharing your faith with people because you think, man, I gotta close the deal. I gotta do this. Just remember, maybe you just need to sow a seed in somebody's life. Maybe that's all you need to do. And then for all of us, I hope that, that God keeps us open to reap where other people have sown as well. The only thing that matters is that people are coming to know Jesus. Let's jump ahead now to verse 43. It says, now after the two days, remember they asked Jesus to stay with them in Samaria. The people there in Sychar did, and he did. It says, after those two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. If you'll remember, Jesus is on a journey from Judea in the south of Israel to Galilee in the north, and Samaria is the region that's in the middle. And so the Holy Spirit led him to make this journey because John the Baptist has been thrown in prison, and Jesus is at risk of being rounded up as well. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that if there were people looking for Jesus to arrest him at that point, the last place in the world they would have looked for a Jewish rabbi was in a Samaritan's village. It's the last place in the world they would have looked. And that's where the Holy Spirit has Jesus go for these two days. Just an interesting point. In verse 44, it says, For Jesus himself testified that, you're going to want to underline this, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. This is a a very insightful verse into the tendencies of people. You and I. Prophet has no honor in his own country. Principle works like this. You can write this down. We, We tend to miss and be unresponsive to the profound things God does right in front of us. We tend to miss and be unresponsive to the profound things God does right in front of us. I've been to churches all over the world. This is the easiest example. Take a church anywhere in the world, any type of church. Pastor gets up every week and is like, guys, I gotta preach repentance to you. You know, uh, as, as a church, there's just too many of us living like Jesus doesn't even exist. We're living in sin. We gotta change the way we're living. We're dishonoring God. This pastor can preach this for three months. The average response will be this. Now, same church, same people. Bring in a traveling speaker. Traveling speaker comes up and says, guys, Lord's told me you guys need to repent. You guys are not honoring God in the way you live. Oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like he's singing right through me. I can't believe this. People on their knees weeping, crying. Pastor's in the back. He's like, what the heck? What the heck? I've been preaching this for like three months. Because there's this human tendency to tune out the things that we're most familiar with. There's also this tendency as believers, we somehow find it hard to think anybody that's in our lives on a regular basis has any real spiritual authority. The person who comes in from the outside still has the mystique, you know? They still have the mystique. You know, you haven't seen them wipe a booger off their nose yet, so you you still think they're immune from all that stuff. When you get to know people day in, day out, week in and week out, they lose some of that shine because you begin to realize they're real people 
used supernaturally by God. And that leads to this phenomenon of the prophet being without honor in his own hometown. You know, just as our tendency, it's just our tendency to become numb to the voices we're most familiar with. Here's another example. You know, maybe you have a spouse, and they've been graciously trying to address an issue with you for months. And you have a friend then who goes and shares it with you. When the friend does it, you'll go, man, this is like God is speaking right to me. This is unbelievable, you know. Because simply through familiarity, something creeps in whether we realize it or not, and we're like, God can't talk to me through my spouse. Oh, come on, you know. I see them when they wake up first thing in the morning. There's no way. There's just no way. And this idea, this way of thinking begins to creep in. And that was what was happening with Jesus' hometown crowd. Some of these people remembered him when he was a boy. They're like, dude, I remember you when you were a clumsy teenager with acne, you know. Others of them just know him as like the craftsman in the town, the tecton. And just through familiarity, they miss the obvious profound thing God's doing right in front of their eyes. <clears throat> Here's an interesting, interesting story about this too. So through a series of events I don't have time to explain, explain to you, uh, our podcast for this church, every week over 100 people listen to the podcast of our messages in Manila in the Philippines. Okay, I'm big in the Philippines. So you know the thought is, okay, well how can I, how can I get 100 people here to listen to it? Well the answer is obvious, move the church to Manila right? And then a hundred people here will be like, there's this Canadian guy, super anointed in Manila, you know, and there's just this thing that happens when somebody's right in front of you. It happens to all of us with our friends, with our spouses, with our family members, with our pastors, with everybody. Prophet is without honor in his own hometown. You know, Jesus is not recorded as having done any miracles or healings during his stay in Samaria. He might have, but it's not recorded at all. And yet the people received him because of his message and what he said. That's why they received him. He told this woman her deepest, darkest secret. But when everybody else came to hear him, they received him, it says, because of what he said, because of his message. In contrast, it says that the Galileans, his hometown, received him because of the miracles he had done. They all remembered him turning water into wine, that first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And apparently word had spread The Samaritans received him because of the gospel. His own people just wanted to see more miracles. Here's the reality. It requires, have you noticed this? It requires humility to receive ministry from people you know. The better you know them, the more humility it takes to receive ministry from them. It's just the truth. Don't discount the prophets and ministers that God's put in your own life just because you're close to them. Don't miss out on ministry that God wants to give to you. You know, in verse 45, when it says that the Galileans received him, it's being sarcastic because they just received him because of the miracles he did. They showed up and crowded around him like a street magician who was returning after a really good performance a few weeks earlier. We're going to see that Jesus doesn't mind doing miracles for people. Unbelievably, Jesus doesn't mind doing miracles for people even before they believe in him as God. He does it all the time. But what bugs him, what bothers him, is when the miracles that he does don't lead to belief in him as God. He'd done miracles right in front of the eyes of many of his own people, and instead of them saying, whoa, who who are you? 
who, who has power to do this? Are you the Messiah? Instead of doing that, they're just saying, do another one. Do another one. Let me get my sick cousin. Do another trick, Jesus. And this gives us, us insight into humanity that still applies today. You can have two people witness a miracle. One of them will pursue Jesus because of the miracle. The other one won't. It still happens today. And the lesson is this. When someone doesn't want Jesus to be their God, no sign will ever be sufficient. The truth is that they don't want to be underneath God. They don't want God in charge of their life. And so it doesn't matter if it rains food. Yeah, I watched Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too this week. It doesn't matter if it rains food. They're still going to say, well, you know, what about this? Immediately dismissing the miracle, the evidence, the sign, going on to their next thing. When you're in a conversation with somebody and they ask a question about God and you answer it and they just go on to the next question. There's no recognition that, whoa, whoa, you just made a really amazing point about God. The, the sad truth is it's probably not going to be any sign that's going to be sufficient for them. The real issue is they, they don't want to be under God's rule, God's reign, and God's leadership. All we can do in those situations is pray that God softens the person's heart. Let's move on to verse 46, and we get into a different story now. I love, love this story. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And the term nobleman means that he was somehow connected to the ruling family of that region, which would have been Herod Antipas' family. He is part of the political ruling elite, either through bloodline or connection or because of his office. He's local royalty. He's, He's a king's man. This guy would have been wealthy, had access to resources, really wanted for nothing. Very connected. But as is so often the case, God is bringing this man to a place, a circumstance, a situation in his life where all the connections, all the money in the world can't help him when the bottom falls out. That's where God is bringing this guy. When someone who doesn't know Jesus reaches this place in their life, they either dig in deeper into their unbelief or they suddenly become open to the possibility that they might not be the master of the universe. And they become open to Jesus. This man's son is dying. His son is dying. And you'll find that trouble for this man and for you and I, trouble is the taxi that will either drive you to Jesus or drive you crazy. Trouble is the taxi that will either drive you to Jesus or it will drive you crazy. This man, and you're going to hear it in his speech, he's, he's in desperation. He's desperate. He's got a broken heart. And he's driven to Jesus. And if, if you're a mother or father here, then, then you'll understand why this nobleman, he doesn't send a servant when he hears Jesus is close. He goes himself because he's desperate. He, take a note of the geography. It's going to be important later on. He's from Capernaum. That's where his home base is. But he's in Cana in Galilee right now. They're about four hours, three and a half, four hours apart by foot, 19 or 20 miles apart. About half a day's journey, a morning's journey. And he's gone himself because he's heard Jesus is there and Jesus can do miracles. So he goes, he's desperate. It says in verse 47, when he heard that Jesus 
had come out of Judea, the Jerusalem area, into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. Let's unpack this a little bit. You know, the term signs and wonders in the Bible is actually always used in a skeptical context. Always. You might be thinking, you know, that, that's a pretty harsh thing, Jesus, to say to a dad whose son is dying. But in the original language, we see a lot more plural meaning to these words. And Jesus even uses the phrase, you people. So he's answering this guy, but he's really speaking to the crowd. This guy is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's surrounded by Jews. So Jesus addresses the crowd. He's using this guy to make a point. And Jesus is basically saying, hey, you know, you guys have no interest unless I do signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. He's speaking more to his own people, the Jews. But we're going to see a very, very different response from this man to the comment that Jesus made. Because Jesus is not condemning this man or even his own audience. (coughs) Excuse me. He's rebuking them. It's called a rebuke. And what's the purpose of a rebuke? Let's read it again. Verse 48. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So what's the purpose of his rebuke? To get them to change. To get them to change. To believe. It's an invitation to respond differently. The rebuke is designed to make people who are paying attention say, okay, I don't need signs and wonders. I'll, I'll believe in you. I'll just believe. That's what it's designed to do. You know, God rebukes you and I as an invitation to change our behavior. We've all been there, right? You know, we, we come to Jesus. We're, we're, in, we're in a desperation. We're in desperation. We're, we're tense. We're flustered. Maybe you're crying. Maybe you're weeping. You're just broken. You're a wreck. You're, you're, you're desperate. You're asking God to do something to fix something. And God doesn't just say, yeah, okay, I'll fix it. God says, hey, hey, before we do that, let's talk about how we got here. How'd you get here, Jeff? What's going on? We go to God in desperation because we've slipped up in our addiction. We've sinned sexually. We're out of money. We're depressed and discouraged. But because he's a good father, he doesn't just fix it right away. He says, we got to talk about this. You know, you're using your addiction to suppress issues that I want to deliver you from. Or, you know, the reason you're in sexual sin is because you don't really believe that my plan for your love life is better. You don't actually believe that. Or, you know, you're in financial crisis because you trusted in money, but you never trusted me with your money. Or he says, you know, you're depressed because your day doesn't begin with me. Don't even start with me. What if your day started with hearing me say, hey, I love you. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. And what bugs Jesus is when our response is, you know, I I don't want to deal with that. Just fix it. Just fix it. Just fix it. You see, Jesus doesn't just want to redeem our situation. He wants to redeem us. He wants to redeem us. He doesn't want to separate the two. He's more interested in working on us even than he is in our situation. If you've never heard this, this is a classic saying. Jesus loves me just the way I am, but he loves me too much to let me stay the way I am. 
He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. That's what the love of God is like. If you ever come to Jesus in a panic, in a state of desperation, saying, fix this. And in love, Jesus first says, what? Why are you so full of fear? Why, why are you so panicked? You're sweating. Listen, listen to the tone of your voice. Why, why don't you just believe? Jesus loved this man just the way he was. He loved him way too much to let him stay that way. A panic with no hope to believe in. So Jesus changes the situation, and he changes the man. Verse 49, it says, The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. If you haven't had this experience before, you you will. After all the drama and the tears and the the desperate pleading and the soul searching under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the anguish, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. Go your way, your son lives. Translation, okay, it's done. Go home, go back to your room. It's done, it's handled. But Jesus is also saying, I'm not going to walk four hours back to your house with you holding your hand. Because you see, I want you to walk by faith like a man. I want you to walk by faith like a man. I want you to be a man of faith, not a panicked, sniveling, desperate person with no faith. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is it's the language of eternity. And God wants us to be fluent in it. In verse 50, it says, So the man, and you're going to want to underline this in your Bibles, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. You know, I believe God wants to speak a word to everybody this morning. And the only question is, will you believe him? I don't need to be a prophet to know you've got troubles. I don't need to be a prophet to know you've got anxieties and fears and worries. And I don't need to be a prophet to know that those things are either driving you to Jesus or they're driving you crazy. One of those two things is happening. And God wants to speak to you this morning. And the question is, will will you believe him? Will I believe him? Verse 51, and as he, the nobleman, was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. So the next day he goes, and and, and his servants meet him on the way, and they say, "Your, your son lives. Did you notice, even in the original text, what they say to him is the exact thing Jesus said to him. Your son lives. Verse 52, then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. As soon as Jesus said that, the son got better. Four hours away. And he himself believed and his whole household. He doesn't just now believe what Jesus says. He believes who Jesus is. He believes in the person of Jesus. Verse 54, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. 
the nobleman believed Jesus when Jesus granted his request. And <coughs> that might sound simple, but we often find it incredibly difficult to do the same thing. We'll, we'll pray and pray and pray for God to heal us or deliver us or do something. And when God actually says, you're healed, you're forgiven, it's done. Most of the time, we don't actually do what the nobleman did. We don't believe and go on our way. We, we stick around and say, uh, it can't be that simple. You, you don't understand. You don't understand what I did. It, it just can't be that easy. And many of us need to learn that when Jesus says it's done, we need to shut up and make sure that the next words that come out of our mouths are thank you. Thank you. Some of us, that's all, that's all we can say. Sometimes that's all I can say in those moments is thank you. You don't need to give voice to anything else. The issue is how do you walk out a healing? How do you walk out deliverance? How do you live in the place of being forgiven? I think it's very simple. You know, when God says it's done, you respond to every doubt and fear by thanking him again that it's done. When God says it's done, you respond to every doubt and fear by thanking him again that it's done. Don't ask him to do something he's already done. Thank him that he's done it. Thank him that he's done it. That's how you walk it out. That's how you live it. And some of us, we might need to start our day by just reading aloud 20 times off a three by five index card. Thank you, Jesus you have forgiven me. Some of us need to do that because all we ever do is give voice to that doubt. Ask Jesus, have you really forgiven me? Or we ask him again to forgive us because we're not really sure he did the first time. When that doubt, that fear, that uncertainty creeps in, the antidote, the way to stay in faith is to combat that by just saying, God, thank you. You've taken care of that. I'm forgiven. That's done. Even when it rises up again, even when Satan tries to accuse me, thank you that it's done. No matter what he says, it's done. Just as sure as you died on the cross and rose again, it is done. It is finished. Some of us might need post-it notes on our bathroom mirror just to reprogram the way we think. But understand this, every time we ask God to do something he's already done, what we're really saying is we're not convinced that he's done it. That's a big deal. Every time we ask God again to do something he says he's already done, what we're really saying is we're not, we're not convinced he's done it. We're not really sure he's done it. When we thank him instead, we're reminding ourselves he's, he's, he's done it. Hey, self, he's done it. He's done it. Just say thank you. Shut up. He's done it. And I want to highlight one more thing today that we raced past. This is huge. This is epic. I need to go back and and show you this. Let's go back to verse 52. The nobleman's servants have met him, and he asks them when the fever left his son. What do they reply? What do they reply? You're going to want to underline that first word. Yesterday. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. What does that mean? That means after Jesus told the nobleman that his son was healed, he didn't go home. He didn't go home. He stayed there. He didn't rush home. Suddenly, 
He didn't just believe Jesus in speech, but his behavior is governed by his belief. If, if there's even a doubt in your mind that your son has been healed, you're running home. You're buying a chariot. You're stealing a donkey. You're doing something. But what would you do if you were certain he was healed? Well, there's, there's no need to panic anymore. There's no need to panic anymore. So he stuck around, took in a movie, maybe a dinner with friends. Maybe he just took care of some business in Cana that he had needed to take care of for a while. He went about his business, whatever he had to do. And he headed home the next day at a relaxed pace. You see the real, unfakeable evidence of faith is peace. It's peace. It's not the person who's got 20 bumper stickers on their car trying to convince themselves that they believe in God. The, the, the real evidence of faith, the, the evidence that you just can't fake, is peace. It's peace. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The stress, the worry, the anxiety, that, that pressing, crushing feeling is gone. It's just gone. So if you want to know if you're a person of faith, ask yourself what you're known as to those who are in your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers. Are you known as the person who's always worried? The person who's always anxious? The person who's always discouraged or down about something? Always saying things like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I'm not saying that your issues aren't real. I'm not saying your challenges aren't real. What I'm saying is the real, unfakeable evidence of faith is peace. It's a peace the Bible talks about that transcends understanding. It, it doesn't even make sense to other people because it's got nothing to do with the situation you're in and everything to do with the one you've placed your faith in. You're saying, I'm not at peace because my situation's awesome. On the contrary, I'm at peace because God is in my situation. That's why I'm at peace. The Bible tells us to cast our cares upon him, to, to leave our anxieties with him, to trust him to determine what's best, and then sit down and enjoy the game with friends and family. Go out to dinner. Go play mini golf. Go enjoy being with people. Not because there's nothing to worry about, but because you've given it to God. There's nothing better you could do. There's nothing more productive you could do. That's what I'm doing this afternoon. I'm watching the game. Dad's TiVoing the game. Going to go watch the game. And I'm not watching the game because I have a checklist and I'm like, I finally got it all done. Or because, you know, I've finally reached the place in life where I have nothing to worry about, where there's nothing that could go wrong. I got a million things in my life hanging on by a thread. But God's holding every single one of those threads. He's the one who's holding it, not me. That's the key to peace. I speak from experience and also as a hypocrite, just so you know. I'm <laughs> preaching to myself as well. I want to be very, very direct about that. Very direct about that. But I trust God. Sometimes I forget that I trust God. When I'm reminded, I try to go back and say, right, you're God. I trust you. 
I'll shut up and get out of the way now before I make things worse. Because when I try to solve my own crisis, oh, it's, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's, it's never, never better. You know, Jesus said in, in the Bible, in the Gospel of Luke, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he says, well, out of the things that are flowing out of your heart, those things come out of your mouth. That's where that comes from, where you're like, oh, I don't know where that came from. God says, I do. It came from your heart. We just got a little insight into what's really going on. That's all. You know, faith shows up in the way you speak. So does doubt and fear and anxiety. It shows up in the way you speak, the way I speak. So, so is your speech merely a mirror of the situation you're in? Is it just a mirror of the situation you're in? It's bad. Everything's falling apart. Got no job, no money, no relationship. Are you just a mirror for the situation you're in, the challenge you're facing, or is your speech a mirror of the word of God and what God says about your situation? How's your business doing? I'm not asking you to lie and be like, it's great because God is great. I'm not asking you to lie. But you know what you might be able to say is you might be able to say, you know, right now it's rough, but uh, I've given it to the Lord and it all belongs to him anyway. And I'm confident he has my best interests at heart. So here's what I know. I know that there are good things ahead, whatever that looks like. And I'm going to continue going forward in faith because I know God's with me. It's just a rough stretch right now. Just pray for me. It'd be good. Be honest. I'm not asking you to be delusional, but I'm asking you to reveal that you have a measure of confidence in your God when you describe the challenges you're facing in your life. That you're not without hope. You're not without hope. You know, what's our excuse for not trusting the Lord? This is always when I feel convicted. Does he not love us? Does he not know what's best for us? Is he not powerful enough? Well, what's our excuse for not trusting God? Does he have a couple of spots in his track record in your life where, you know, he didn't really take care of you when you trusted him? You know, if I could physically see God with me in my conversations, I'd never express any of the doubts that I have. If the, you know, if I could see the person of the Holy Spirit in my in a conversation, you know, I'd never, I'd never say something like, it feels hopeless, because the Holy Spirit would be right over the person's shoulders going like this. You know, like, what am I, chopped liver? Hopeless? I'm God. I'm like, I'm like right here. I'm right here. It's a little offensive. I'd n- I'd, I would talk completely differently. That's the reality. The Holy Spirit is here. He's, he's with us. He's with us. He got you here. He saved you from death. Made sure that you have eternal, everlasting life through Jesus. He's got this. He's got it. If you'll give it to him. So let's pray instead of complaining. Let's pray instead of complaining. You know, the great thing is when you complain through prayer, it's still praying, you know. It's one of the secrets of the Bible. You can see it in the Psalms. When it's to God, it's still prayer. So for some of you, there's your loophole. You can complain to God all that you want. Complain to God all that you want. Just make sure you listen when it's his turn to talk. You know, if if you're a follower of Jesus, you're forgiven. There's no shame. There's no shame anymore. But your next step might be starting to walk as a man or woman of faith. That might be your next step. God might be saying, it's time for you to walk. Walk like a man. Walk like a woman of faith. Not like a little child anymore in the area of faith. 
Start living as though the God you worship's actually with you. He's actually with you. You know, what a, what a crazy idea, aligning my beliefs with my actions. This is mind-blowing. Living as though I actually believe what I believe. Wow, this is deep. This is deep. It's the greatest challenge we'll all face in the Christian life again and again and again is the challenge for each of us to live like we actually believe what we believe. It's still my greatest challenge today. You know, none of us is exempt from crisis or trouble. None of us. None of us. But if you'll give it to God and then believe the word, the scriptures and the word Jesus, the story of the nobleman will become your story. Other people will notice. They'll notice that the fear and the panic and the desperation has subsided and there's peace instead. And faith will spread through your whole household. Guarantee it. That's the testimony to people. You're in crisis, but you have, you have peace. How is that possible? Why aren't you panicking? It's an incredible testimony. So let's choose to believe together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jordan, I'll ask you to come up. This is the big question is, are we walking as men and women of faith? Are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? What marks your life? Is it this panic, this desperation? I don't know if God is going to come through. I don't know how this is going to work out. I got no hope. Is that the description of your life? Are you, are you the nobleman when he first comes to Jesus? God, fix it. Do something. Do something. Or are you the nobleman after he's had an encounter with Jesus? Who just says, I, I believe it. I believe it. So I'm not going to live under fear anymore. I'm not going to live under doubt anymore. Because I believe it. Which one of those describes you this morning? God might be rebuking you this morning, and it's not because he's condemning you. It's because he's inviting you to change. And he's saying, stop, stop the cycle of unbelief. Just believe. You know, later on in his ministry, Jesus is going to have an interaction where he says a similar thing to a man who's asking for his child to be healed. And the man's response is, then help my own belief. Jesus doesn't condemn him for saying that. That's a legitimate request. Maybe you're in that place where you want to believe, but all you can manage to say right now is, God, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. He'll start with you there. That's okay. Let's start there. But in this coming time of worship, would you just give those things to God? In 1 Peter in the Bible, it says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Would you just begin to think about all the things you're worried about, all the things you're anxious about, and just begin to give them to God. Within your spirit, just begin to say, God, you, I want you to be in charge, God. I want you to be in charge of my career, my marriage, my relationships, my children, 
my dreams, my addiction. God, I want to trust you with those things. Help me to trust you with those things. Just begin to let those things go. Just begin to give them to God and allow him to fill you up with the peace of his spirit instead. Father, thank you so much that you haven't invited us to have peace in eternity, but you've invited us to have peace starting today right here. You've invited us to experience the peace that comes from knowing the things we care most about are in your hands. And where else would we want them? Father, thank you that you've offered us peace in this lifetime. I pray that we would take you up on that offer, that we would be like the nobleman who believed the words you said and went on our way. And so when we leave here today, may that be us. Not with the testimony that everything's suddenly better, but that we have peace even when it's not. Because you said you've got this. You've got it. Thank you for caring about the minutia, the tiniest details of our lives, God, here on this earth right now. And thank you for loving us, God. Thank you, Jesus.